Welcome to Humble Beginnings, a podcast where we uncover the unconventional, more relatable paths to success. In this show, we'll share the stories before the C-suites, board memberships, and appointments, the stories of various upbringings, first jobs, career pivots, educational uncertainties, and more. This is the place to hear about their lives from the GovCon executives themselves. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Humble Beginnings. I'm your host, Amanda Ziede, and our guest today is Stan Sims, Senior Vice President and Chief Security Officer at CGI. Thank you for being here today, Stan. Thank you, Amanda. I, I really appreciate the, this opportunity. And I also want to thank uh, Washington Exec for having me here today uh, and giving me a, a humble uh, opportunity to share my story. And, and I also think this is a great initiative by uh, Washington Exec, and I'm, I'm pleased to participate. Wonderful. Well, it's, it is our pleasure to have you here today. And Stan, admittedly, most of what I know about your journey comes from your bio. So I'm really excited to talk to you today and learn more about your story. But for those who might be unfamiliar, uh, Stan is a retired uh, member of the Defense Intelligence Senior Executive Service, a retired U.S. Army colonel, and a decorated combat veteran with more than 36 years of combined military and public service experience. And before CGI, um, Stan, I understand that you're with the DOD in various security-related capacities, most recently as the Director of the Defense Security Service. So we are absolutely going to uncover how a zoology degree leads to a career in defense security. Uh, But first, um, I know you've got an interesting story to share. So Stan, I want to start uh, by asking if you could tell me a bit about yourself, perhaps where you're from, where you grew up, uh, what your family was like, if you don't mind me asking. Uh, my beginnings and my story is founded really from a perspective of, of being, a, first of all, a minority in America. I'm an African-American in which I grew up in the rural South, you know, during the early civil rights days. And now others may have a different perspective, but I think uh, those that are listening need to understand that that is my perspective. Uh, that's the first. And the second one is... Uh, you know, we always talk about uh, success and you say, uh, you know, where are you going? And I, I've always said that success is, is defined differently by everyone. You know, so depending on, on where someone and some people are in their lives, they may say, I'm, you know, I'm successful. Uh, but, uh, but others uh, certainly may look at me and say, well, you know, not, maybe not so much, Right. So I think that is something that, uh, that I like to also make sure that uh, the audience knows that, you know, everybody has to define their own success and what that means to it. And it certainly doesn't, uh, it's not going to look the same for everyone. So uh, the first thing is uh, I, I'm a son of sharecroppers. I don't know if you know that term uh, or not, but sharecroppers is, uh, are, are people that grew up in the South and they worked on farms, right, farmer but we didn't own the farm. My grandfather and my parents didn't own the farm. It was owned by uh, another family, but we harvested and worked the land and then uh, and, and got paid or settled it at the end of the year. So none of what we, uh, we worked on was ours. We worked and harvested, and that's how we made a living. If anybody has ever worked on the farm, they'll know from the time you start, you're able to walk, you start working. Right. And where was this exactly? Where in the South? This was in Arkansas. It was in the east. It was on the eastern uh, part of Arkansas, flatland. And by the way, Arkansas in the United States is called the natural state because uh, 
all natural resources that can be found in the United States can be found in Arkansas. Uh, Texas like to think so, but Arkansas <laughs> is actually the only state that can subsist on its own. What was it like uh, growing up and working on the farm with your family? Any core memories or maybe experiences that stuck with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know I would say uh, first of all we worked, and and when I say we worked hard, uh, uh, you know, even in elementary school when we were working, uh, I didn't actually my first uh, three grades in school, first, second, and third, I didn't even go to school all three three days. We we worked on the farm. We went to school Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and we worked on the farm Tuesdays and Thursday, and Saturday, by the way. It's always a six-day work week. And our, our, even our teachers knew this in the community where we're at. It was mainly a minority community, and, uh, and they would help us out. They would make sure they position our, our homework, you know, on the days we weren't there, and we'd fill it in because they didn't want to see us get behind. Again, many of, of my, my, uh, my siblings and, and, and folks around me did the similar thing. Uh, so there was a six day work. You go to school three days, you worked um, for three days. And then of course on Sunday, you went to church and then you, and that's where, you know, you know, you helped to, to grow my faith, if you will. All right. So tell me about school then. So what, what were you interested in as you grew up, uh, you know, in, in school and what kind of led to your love of later, we'll find out, zoology? <laughs> well, you know, uh, by the time I was six or seven, I think I was, um, you know, I, I was kind of aware, very aware, early awareness of my environment. Uh, I don't know why, but I was aware that, uh, you know, this was a lot of hard work. And, uh, and everybody was working. And, I, and, uh, and so one day I asked my dad, I said, Dad, what, what, what do you have to do to, uh, to get off the farm, like uh, to do something else? Now, you got to remember, my dad never graduated from high school and neither did my mom. OK, uh, I think my dad reached eighth grade. Eighth grade. Uh, and and he, his answer was, he said, son, you need to get an education. You need if you don't want to do what we're doing, you want to have a better life then you need to get an education. And for some reason that just stuck with me, you know, at six or seven years old. So I said, okay, is that all I have to do? Then that's, uh, so that, that started my quest of, hey, look, I got to educate myself. And by the way, I was the first, uh, you know, I have a large family, farm families are really big. And uh, out of all the sisters and brothers and cousins, and, uh, and there were seven, my mother had seven, uh, there were seven of them you know, uh, five uh, girls and uh, two boys. And we had large families. I have aunts that had 12, 13 children. You know, if, I, if I'm going to do better and provide for my family, then maybe I'll need to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. So I said, you know, may, doctor sounds good. I mean, and it really was just, the you know, doctors did well. as everything you read and all that. So I said, well, you know, if I study hard, I can, I, I can be a doctor. And by the way, I wasn't a smart kid. I had a good work ethic. I would study you know, to pass grades, uh, and I would study hard. Okay, that was the way it went. It didn't come intuitive to me, but um, uh, but I studied, uh, and that's uh, and and so I made really good grades as I was coming up, and and I was focused in all in high school and getting a science degree and trying to get the right grades to get into medical school one day. Got it. Well, actually, now that we fast forwarded a bit, I do want to go back a little bit. Were you, I imagine, were you working 
through middle school, high school until you went to college? Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's a great question because I tell people all the time. I didn't participate in organized uh, school sports when I was in junior high school and high school. And mainly because, first of all, I'm the oldest sibling of a boy. I'm the oldest male. There are seven of us. I have one sister, older sister, but I was the oldest uh, uh, son. And my older sister is about a year, a little little over a year older than I am. So I always had responsibility. I felt responsible to help my parents. So I always had work after school. I couldn't participate in organized sports because I was either, you know, bagging groceries in a grocery store. I was cutting lawns. I had a paper route. I even, you know, worked on the farm, drove tractors for, you know, uh, for other families to make extra money. So I always had that responsibility. And then and then after my my work and then I would go and study at night to get ready to go to school the next day. But I would generally most often leave school and go directly to my after school uh, job. And I would take that money and I would always give it give it all to my mom. And then I would and she said, no, I don't want all of it. And but uh, she would, uh, I would say, no, you take it. And then she would give me back what, uh, you know, what she didn't need. And, uh, and, and so that's, uh, that was my after school thing. So I, I played, you know, after school sports, but I didn't, you know, what we call sandlock sports, if you will, around, around the neighborhood. But I couldn't participate in, in, in school uh, organized athletics because I had responsibility. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's clear to see how that work ethic started at such a young age and permeated through other aspects of your life, like school. I mean, when you start working that young and it just becomes a part of your life, it's, it's, uh, you know, it makes sense how that, uh, how that can affect the way that you handle schoolwork and your outside jobs. So. So, and, and Amanda, you know, I, I know we, we, we pass on things and I know you, you'll probably ask, you know, one of those lessons I learned was, was hard work. And I, I tell folks, uh, anybody that I mentor or talk to, I said, uh, you know, you know, work is something that you got to do. And success, certainly uh, my dad, again, not a, not a high school graduate, but I can remember him always saying, he said, son, you know, the only, the only place success comes before work, hard work is in the dictionary, yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because alphabetically, you know, you get to success first, but you, you certainly got to work at whatever you, 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 you know, you, uh, uh, if you're going to be successful at something. And that was kind of my being. Okay. No one, I, I didn't figure anybody could outwork me. And through hard work, I would get to where, to where I needed to be. And the other thing about work was he always said, look, always do, the, you know, do your best at whatever you're doing. Always do your best, right? And, and he had a little thing, you know, he always had these uh, these analogies or whatever, and they're always about the farm, you know, that everything about the farm. And he'd always said, look, look, son, if you're digging a hole, and, you know, it's a simple hole, he says, uh, you know, make sure that's the best hole that you can dig. Now, he said, it may not be the best hole that's ever been dug, but it ought to be the best hole that you can dig. So always put your best effort in whatever you're doing. And I always thought about that. If I'm going to put my time and effort in, it needs to be the best job that Stan Sims can do. And that's been my perspective on everything that I've done throughout my, my career and my life. And, and that continues today. I don't have to do anything. And people that know me know that I, I'm probably passionate about whatever I do. 
I got old saying, the best job I've ever had is the job that I'm in because I'm focused about what I'm doing at the time. Awesome. Yeah. I also want to remind our audience that you at six or seven years old, asked your dad how you can succeed past farming. I just don't think that's something that most of us think of at six or seven years old, you know, your life that far, far down. My awareness was very sharp back then. I don't know if it was sharper than anybody else, but I was aware of my surroundings and what was going on in life. And, and that's what prompted me to ask that question. And oh, by the way, I ask a lot of questions. Everybody always knows that because I don't know anything. I consider myself a sponge. Life is a continuous educational journey. Uh, mm-hmm. Even my teachers in school, I would always set up at the front of the class, always, always, because I wanted to hear what was going on. And, and I always asked questions. If there was, you know, if I didn't know something, like another one of my dad's lessons, look, son, if you don't know something, ask somebody. Ask. All right. So, so you went to the University of, um, or Arkansas State University for zoology, hoping to eventually become a doctor, have a medical degree. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how was college? How was that experience for you? Um, having been the first member of your family to attend a university? You know, I grew up in civil rights and, um, you know, uh, desegregation started when I was in junior high school. So first of all, my sister and I were one of the first in our family to go to an integrated school. The first year was optional, you know, before it became mandatory. We were two of the oldest. And I told her, look, I'm, I'm going to, uh, pardon my French, but I'm going to go to the white school because I want to get educated. And she said, well, I can't let you go by yourself. So she went with me. So that first year, none of my our other cousins went. So it was just my sister and I of our family. And that for that first year, we were the only ones that were in our you know, grade sessions that went to that school. But um, and long story short, at uh, in Marion High School in, uh, in, in Arkansas, I became the first male African-American to be inducted in the National Honor Society there at Marion High School. Uh, not because I was smart. It's because I just worked hard. <laughs> okay. So, and then, so when I got ready to graduate, the counselors there, if oddly enough, they said, Hey, look, you, I think you can get an appointment to West Point. And I said, I, I don't want to have anything to do with the army. Remember this statement, by the way, later on, I said, I want to become a doctor. So no, I don't want to, I don't want that. And even after graduating number 10 in my high school, I still only got a one year academic scholarship to Arkansas state. But I didn't care. I said, okay, I'm going to go to school that one year. So I went to Arkansas State, uh, fully funded for one year, had no idea how I was going to pay for the next three years. But I knew I was going to go to college. And so off to Arkansas State University uh, to a science degree, zoology or biology were the two tracks to get you into, into medical school. So that's what I did. I'm curious, since you mentioned it, how your experience was in high school being the first uh, year that your, the high school was desegregated? It, you know, that's a, that's a touchy one, but I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, to, in all transparency, that first year was tough on my sister and I because, you know, when playtime, you know, recess, you know, uh, we would always find each other because she was one year old and I am in the playground, and we just played with each other. Nobody else would play with us. Uh, for lunch, we sat with each other. 
none of the other kids, they, you know, they looked at us, they, you know, they whispered, they talked, but uh, no, no one, as I recall, no one really mingled with us, you know, during the play times. Uh, obviously, in the school settings, the teachers were very nice, and they they knew we were eager, and it was uh, better. But it was a it, it was a year of isolation, but it was it was a great year of reflection about you know that set also set the tone about who I am and how I am in this society because I also learned that you know people are people, you know there's no such thing as really colors and. You know, and uh, my my thoughts about uh, discrimination and all that is about my dad and mom and thank them. They always said, look, you don't discriminate against anyone. You know, you treat everybody right. And, and as long as people treat you right, you treat them right. It doesn't matter what color or uh, their skin. It's all about how you treat people. Okay, so you're studying zoology at Arkansas State University. When you graduated, what was your plan afterwards? Because... I assume that you did not go to medical school. I only had one year to pay for uh, of school. So that first year, got good grades, uh, you know, uh, above, I don't know, 3.3 or 3.4 uh, grade point average that first year. Still very good. Uh, but I still went through that whole year not knowing how I was going to pay for school. My parents certainly couldn't pay for it. And even if I borrowed money, they wouldn't been able to pay it back. How was I going to pay it back? That's a, that was my thought. Uh, and uh, and so I was studying um, uh, you know zoology. But uh, at some point, I went to a, a college football game and I saw the the ROTC Reserve Officer Training uh, Corps uh, perform a drill team perform at halftime. And oh my God, coming off the farm, you know, I thought that was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life this drill team, how precision and organized they were. And so when they came off the field, I ran, made my way down to the sideline trying to figure out, hey, look, how do I become one of you all? How do I do this? How can I get involved in it? Because I thought they were, it was a team, you know, and they were working well together. And and I said, I got interested in it. Long story short, I, I they said, well, you can join ROTC. I said, no, I don't want to go in the Army. I just want to do this. I just want to learn how to do this. Uh, I did get linked up with them. I started doing it. And uh, by the end of my first year, uh, the uh, the sergeant major there at the university uh, got to talking to me. And uh, I made the drill team, by the way, but I still wasn't formally in the ROTC program. And he started talking to me, and I kind of gave him a little of my story, told him I couldn't, uh, you know, I, I don't know how I'm going to go to uh, school next year. And he talked to me about an ROTC scholarship that they would they could offer me a three-year scholarship to pay for school. He said, but you're a little late because the board has already met. But here in my story, he said, tell you what, we're going to fill out an application. I'm going to talk to some folks and I, and maybe over the summer, maybe we can get you in. You certainly have good enough grades, et cetera. So again, another lo- that's a long story, but uh, needless to say, over the summer, um, uh, I, I got word from the, uh, from the, the ROTC program that I had been accepted. So then my next three years were paid for. And, uh, and so I had to turn my obligation around and say, okay, I was running from the Army, but I'm going to end up having to go to the Army. Okay, because they had, a, you know, you could go through the Army medical program. That's what excited me. So I still said I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to go through the medical ar- the Army medical program. I'll do my four or six years, and then I'll go off and, and do the rest of my life. So that was kind of how I ended up, you know, st- coming into the Army, but still – 
I was focused on being becoming a doctor because I still had it in my head, you know, that was the way to success, if you will, to be able to, you know, provide for my family, help my entire family, et cetera. I wasn't aware that's how you landed in the army. Having said years ago that you did not want to go to the army. <laughs> no, no. So your paths aren't clear, you know. Uh, exactly. Uh, I, I, I got an old saying come from my faith. I said, you know, God always leads you where he wants you to be. You know, you, you, you may have all these plans. And I, and I got a little story about plan because being in the military. But, uh, but you're going to end up where I think, uh, you know, God wants you to be. That's what my faith say. If there's something I've learned from hosting the, this podcast, that is so true. The path that people have taken to where they are today is there is no clear line or rhyme or reason. Things have just sort of landed the way they have. What is the story that you have about plan? Is it time for that story yet? Well, I told you I was going to go in the army and I was going to go to med school and then come to find out, you know, there was a two year wait to get into the uh, medical program. And so the army said, okay, your grades are good enough, but you're going to take a two-year uh, reprieve. We're going to branch you, Army Intelligence, and then you, you, after two years, then we'll, there'll be an opening for the medical program, and you, you can get into that. I, I didn't even want to go into Army Intelligence because I wanted to be an infantryman because I was a distinguished uh, honor graduate at the Arkansas State University ROTC program uh, because, again, I didn't have to do anything, so I was a uh, the top of the class there in my ROTC program. I actually went to, to uh, airborne school, jump school as a junior in college because I was, uh, they only picked two out of the whole each year. And I got one of those slots because I was, uh, uh, I, I, they considered me a, a top ROTC student. So because of all of that, they said, nah, uh, we want to send you to Army Intelligence. I said, yeah, no, no, I, I'll, I'll be an infantryman. Um, unbeknownst to me that the Army was trying to, to recruit more African-American people of colors in the intelligence branch. And, and to my knowledge, that was one early days. It was one of the first, uh, the largest class of African-Americans to be inducted in the, uh, assessed into the Army intelligence field. And I said, that, that's fine. I'll do anything for two years until I get back on my path. So I, I went to Army intelligence school, went off to the intelligence school, came back, got married. Another story between that before my duty station. Uh, to, a, to a lovely lady that I met in, in college in my sophomore year. And um, that influenced us a little bit too. So I went off and did that. But then my first duty assignment was in Germany, Germany. So here's a kid, never been out of Arkansas, leaving the country for my first duty assignment. Unbelievable. Third Infantry Division in, in Würzburg, Germany. Uh, uh, and I was married and went off. Uh, and left my wife, who was finishing up college, by the way, because she was a year behind me, and then um, and and went off to my first duty assignment as an Army intelligence officer. Well, needless to say, I did those first two years. I, actually, my first assignment, our first assignment, was was three, almost three and a half years here in Germany. After the the two year had passed, and they called me and said, "Are you ready now?" And uh, Amanda, I tell you, I was having a ball. I was loving what I was doing. Wow. So were you in Germany for three years? I was there for three, three and a half, almost three and a half. And then, and then by that time, I'd said, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going I'm to pursue the Army intelligence field. I had a young son. My wife and I, we were enjoying it three whole years. And by the way, the only time my wife and I ever lived in a house together after our marriage was in Europe. 
Well, okay, so after she finished school, she came to meet you. Exactly. After my uh, basic course in Fort Huachuca, Arizona, I came back home, married my wife, because again, I was always thinking if I got married before my first duty assignment, then the army would pay for her to come over to, to meet me. So it was the timing of our marriage was all based on, you know, what would uh, what would be best uh, best for us. So I married her uh, two weeks before I reported to my first official duty assignment. Uh, and that was um, uh, I, I reported uh, over there uh, yeah, late April. And uh, if you know your history, there's uh, that was a, a very uh, significant part. Uh, the Iran hostage scandal, a rescue, failed rescue attempt happened during that time. Again, another whole story. But so off to Germany, my wife followed me. We spent the first three and a half years of our life together there. And again, we both were from Arkansas. And by the way, my wife grew up on, on the farm too, just a little bit south of where I grew up. But we, we only met in college. And we were both, again, like sponges. We didn't know anything about the Army. We just knew the training. But we were hell-bent, if I could use that term, on learning everything we could about Army life and how do you, how do you become successful in the Army and she was a great trooper because neither one of she didn't know anything about being an army wife, but she knew she didn't know what she was, what we were doing, but we were eager to learn. And I think a lot of people around us saw that, a lot of our mentors, and they appreciated that. So they tried to pass on everything they could to us because we were eager. We were eager to learn. So when you got the call that it was time to move on or, you know, and, but you, you had realized that you wanted to continue with intelligence. What did you do afterwards? How did your job change? Well, it, it was, uh, once you, you know, by that time I was looking at the intelligence branch, you got to understand what is a su- successful career looks like in intelligence. And I had done this study and the army is a great training ground because it lays it all out to you. It tells you what are the jobs you need to have, you know, how well you need to do, here's the progression you don't have to figure that out. And that's why the Army is, was such a great place for me to go, by the way, because it is one of the best institutions in the world. Military service, but I'm partial to the Army, obviously, <laughs> uh, because they always have a plan. We, we, we do plan a lot in the Army. And so that path was already there. I just have to figure, figure out which one of them I wanted to take. So I was always into the, you know, uh, how can I be the best intelligence officer, operational intelligence officer that I could and what path that I want to want to take. So you got to be a company commander, you know, and then you become battalion commander, maybe break a commander and you move on up. So that was the path that I was on. And I was trying to take all the right jobs that would put me into that position. And so I ended up doing rather well. I would say I made colonel before I retired. And, and by the way, of the African-Americans that, uh, that were assessed that year, I think my uh, it's, don't quote me 100%, but I think there were less than 10 of us that actually made colonel. And I believe the number is actually six. There were six of us out of a group of almost 2,000 that were assessed in that 1979 year group of African-Americans. And, and six of us in that year group, I think, made full colonel. That's awesome. Which is not a, not a small task, but... yeah. Well, congratulations on that, uh, that military career. That's, it's amazing. I mean, and it's funny because throughout your, um, your story, you have been in that top 
you know, 10 many times and you keep saying, well, I wasn't smart. I just worked hard. And I don't know. I'm starting to think. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I wasn't smart. And I would, I would tell anybody because I had a younger sister who was smart. She, she was, you know, valedictorian of her. And by the way, my wife was too. She was valedictorian of her high school, graduated with top grads out of college. She was a spelling bee champ in Arkansas. Definitely, I married much better than she did. I was never the absolute top, but I was in the top running because I just worked hard. This is where the humble part comes in. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, All right. So, Stan, you you, uh, retired as colonel. And I do do understand that you also um, have some master's degrees as well. Was this after the Army that you pursued additional? No, both of them was in the Army. And by the way, I didn't. uh, uh, My first master's, I I got selected to the uh, Army's Command and General Staff College, which is, uh, you know, that's one of those mid-career. You go in as a mid-career officer, as a major. But it is the first uh, thing you get selected for in residence that really tabs you as those that get selected for the Army Command and General Staff College, they tab you as uh, your potential for future leadership in the in the military. And I got selected. And during that Command and General Staff College time, it's the first time I had come out of the Operational Army, and now it was uh, the big Army school, the mid-career Army school. You've been in about 11 and 12, uh, maybe 13 years, I guess, at that point. And during that time, I went to school uh, nights and weekends, to get my first master's degree. So I was basically taking two master's degrees, the Army Command General Staff College. And then on weekends, I went to uh, Central Michigan University, had an off-campus program, and we would uh, I would go to the school in Kansas City. Uh, and that's when I got my first uh, master's because I knew to become a lieutenant colonel, most lieutenant colonels, again, all had at least a master's degree. So I did it while I was in the command general staffs. The second master's degree, the Army selected me after I came out of battalion command to go to the Army War College, which is another very selective school to be selected in residence. As a matter of fact, it's so hard. They say it's tougher to be get selected to uh, the War College than it is to be selected for colonel because all of the senior leadership, the, 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 uh, if you're going to be a general officer or if you're going to be as a federal civilian, most of the ones that become senior civilians all uh, have gone through that senior level court, like the War College. And I was selected to go to the National War College. Uh, so that was the second master's in national security strategy. So I've always kind of planned and um, just like my life, plan things out. You know, after I come out of the Army, what do I do, et cetera? And, and I wanted to go into private uh the private sector after the army, because, you know, I had spent all my career in, in the army at that time, 26 and a half years, but that wasn't to be too either. I actually had a job in the private sector back, you know, in 2005, 2006, and actually uh, <clears throat> had a contract in hand and was going to sign it then. But because during my time in the, in the Pentagon, I had worked for one of the undersecretaries uh, of defense and security and uh, so when I got out of the, when I retired from the military, I was going off to private sector. And one of the deputy undersecretaries, uh, General Jerry Boykin, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, called me as I was transitioning and said, Stan, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go off to the private sector. And, and I had, had been his executive officer and helped stand up the, uh, the Department of Defense and 
Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. This was after 9-11 and we'd gone through some transition. But he called me and asked me to come go back to work for him. And I said, uh, <laughs> and he said, what are you doing? I said, no, sir, I'm drinking coffee. And, and, uh, and he said, well, what are you going to do next? And I, I told him. And then he said, well, we want you to come back to work for us in the federal government. And my first thought, and this is a true story, I said, well, sir, you can't afford me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you didn't, you didn't you know, make a lot of money in the military or public service. I said, I got a job that's going to pay me more money than I've ever made in my life. Now, that's relevant, but, you know, that's relative, too, because, you know, I hadn't made that much. You know, even military service members don't make that much. So whatever a private company was going to pay me was going to be much more than I ever made in my life. Uh, but I knew what they were making in the federal government, and I knew they couldn't pay me that. But long story short, he said, Stan, I, I know we can't pay you. He says, uh, but we'll make you, uh, you know, the you know, highest ranking non-executive, uh, you know, GS-15, government service 15, and we'll pay you much of that. But it still was going to be less than what this other company was going to pay me. Not about a whole lot, but not much. And he said, he said, but that's not the last of your journey. He said, knowing you and the, and the time we spent together, I can assure you, he said, I can't promise you when or how long or whatever, but if you come back to the federal government, you're going to be your senior executive in the government. I just know that. You just have to trust me. And I said, wow. Again, long story short, we, 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 hang up, we hung up the phone. And he said, by the way, the undersecretary personally asked me to come and talk to you, which uh, I'm saying, wow. Uh, so I have the phone and I talked to my wife and uh, and we ta- it took us a couple of weeks because I told the other company I'm going to need a couple of weeks to figure out whether I'm going to take their offer. And I mauled over this and I said, man, this is an opportunity for me to do something for my family. It was tumultuous. I was, I agonized over it. But at the end of the day, you know, what helped me is my wife. And I asked her, what do we do? Yeah, she said something to the fact that, you know, we haven't made a dime of that money yet. So, you know, and we know we can live off what the federal government is going to pay me because now you got your retirement. And finally, she said, look, you've done well by our family all this time. So whatever choice you make, we'll be right there with you. And that was like a burden that was lifted off my shoulders. And I said, you know, because I really wanted to, I, I liked the gentleman that asked you. And, you know, it's always good when somebody's asking you absolutely to come and help them. And I knew the crowd. And, and by the way, there's a future part of that from uh, from CGI. Uh, you know, uh, someone wanting you to help them do something. And General Boykin was asking me to come back and help. He said, you have a lot of operational experience. We can't find that anywhere else. We need you to help us continue our growth pattern in the intelligence and, uh, and security undersecretariat. And I soon became a senior executive and then ended up being the director of one of the 18 defense agencies within the Department of Defense by the time the end of that 10 years, that that decade culminated in me uh, uh, being an agency director, which I thought, again, was just a highlight of my career. And in, uh, as an agency director, you're, you're kind of you're the civilian equivalent of a, like a three-star general in the civilian world. So I didn't make general officer in the Army, but uh, I became a senior executive uh, in, the, in the federal government, in the Department of Defense, and I said, okay, eh, that might be okay. <laughs> That might just do it. That <laughs> might be okay. But again, I was going to I was going to leave at that point and uh and just retire, but I met this guy called George Schindler 
er, while I was serving as a senior exec in, uh, in the Pentagon staff, I was the director of security policy for all of the Department of Defense. When I met George Schindler, uh, he was not the CEO at the time. Uh, Michael Roach was. Uh, but Michael, I met both of them about the same time. And, and again, that's another whole story. So I met him back in 2009, uh, I think it was, he and Mike Roach. I didn't join CGI until 2016. So you, you think about that. And, and I'm in the federal government, but, you know, relationships and et cetera. So I did my time and, uh, uh, and, and culminated at the director of the Defense Security Service. Wow. And you were ready to retire before you joined CGI. CGI. Yep. How'd they get you? <laughs> well, like I said, George and I became friends and uh, good friends. And as, as the director of Defense Security Service, that job was basically it was an oversight agency for the federal government. The Department of Defense was the executive agency agent for a program called the National Industrial Security Program, which oversee um, contractors who did highly sensitive and classified work for the U.S. federal government, not just the Department of Defense, but all federal government agency. And CGI Federal, at the time, George, was the business unit leader for CGI Federal. And so uh, CGI Federal was, uh, was a member of the National Industrial, is still today a member of the National Industrial Security Program. And George was over there. And, and so George would, uh, you know, and we met back in 2009. So we, we still maintain a, a close collaborative work, working relationship. He would come by and we'd visit. We'd have lunch sometime. He was, he was always interested in, in security and what an impact security would make on his business, et cetera. I have to credit that to George. He would always ask me where I think security is going long before he became the CEO uh, of CGI. And so unbeknownst to me, I think he was recruiting me all the time, but I just didn't know it. Uh, so at the time in which I got ready to leave, George asked me, it's, uh, and some of my colleagues, I've told this story in CGI a lot. Uh, George said, look, Stan, whenever you finish this government stuff, do one thing for me. If you could just come talk to us before you go off and, and take another job with anyone, at least come talk to us. Give me the benefit of coming talk to us. And that was it. So when that time came, you know, I started looking and I was going to retire. And then I said, no, nah, I'm too young. I can't retire. There's more to do. Opportunities came about. So I started looking. But I did exactly what George asked me to do. He said, uh, at least give me a chance. So CGI was going to be on that list anyway of things that I do. And I still had not fulfilled one other goal. And that was to uh, you know do a stance in private sector. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. and and here again. I came to CGI because the other companies, they wanted me to be the, their chief security officer and run their program because of my background, that the Defense Security Service basically did assessments of all those companies that did work for the US federal government, and we assessed their security program. So I was you know, over 10,000 companies. So my, my team was always looking at security programs. So I had a good feeling about what a good security program looked like and what, and what a bad one looked like. So I had a good, a good thought about, about that. Uh, so when it came time to make selection, it was George who came to me and started talking to me before I left the federal government about some of the ideas he had about the security program. And basically he asked me, he said, Stan, could you come and help us, you know, reorganize our security program? I said, uh, security is becoming, a, you know, starting to become, a, uh, you know, an issue, a, a big challenge, and I need someone to help me lead it. 
So here again, I was excited about an organization that was asking me to come and help them mm-hmm. do something. It, it wasn't about the, you know a title or anything. It was about, you mean I get to help do something, build something. Again, long story short, that's what drove me to make the choice to come to CGI. Because George asked me to do something, not just uh, wear a title, but help him reorganize. Awesome. And so that's how I, I got to be. Where you are today. Yeah. Right. Hey, hey uh, Amanda, I wouldn't, um, I'd be remiss if I did not. You know, there are there are teachings and mentors throughout my career, and there are things that I, you know, I, uh, but early on in my military career, being an African American, I want to come back to that. And one of my stories and, and things I tell people to is, uh, you know, about working hard and then being, um, you know, uh, doing the best you can. Uh, there's a there's a gentleman called Benjamin Mays, and he's a civil rights leader. I think he's considered the father of intellectual civil rights is what, uh, what they say. He, he had a lot of quotes, and there were a couple of quotes that I always stuck with me, and I learned them early on about goals and et cetera. But Benjamin Mays had one, to, and everybody's heard it. I don't know if they know who said it, but you probably have heard that old thing about, uh, you know, and I'll quote. He had, a, he had a quote that said, the tragedy of life doesn't lie in not reaching your goal. The tragedy lies in having no goal to reach. Okay, and That's the first part of that quote. The rest of it said, it isn't a calamity to die without dreams unfulfilled, but it is a calamity not to dream. It is not a disgrace not to reach the stars, but it is a disgrace to have no stars to reach for. Not failure, but low aim is sin. I, I don't know if that makes sense to you. So goal, having a goal, something to reach. And it's not, uh, you know, again, failure. It's just, but you have to have a goal and you have to dream. Okay. And that's so I've always had a goal. I always had to plan, go back. You know, it may not go in the way you want it, but you got to have a plan. And the other one, which is really my favorite, is a quote about running faster. Uh, and this one goes to the heart of African-American. And if any of my African-American or minority colleagues get a chance to hear this, I hope they hear this because I, I mentor folks about this all the time. And it has to do with how you live your life as a minority in any majority society. And it was all about running faster. And that quote says, he who starts behind in the great race of life, that's typically you know, an African-American uh, life story. He who starts behind in the great race of life must re- forever remain behind or run faster than the man in front of him. Think about that. Most African-Americans in America, they start behind their uh, majority colleagues. Some don't, very few don't, but most do. I, and I equated that, I turned that into like a, a hundred meter race. There's only one finish line at the end of that journey, but there's always two start points. And most minorities start behind that starting line. And if you're a minority in this society, and if you want to to end that race, at least with that person that started in front of you, it stands to reason you have to run faster. If you're going to tie the race or if you're going to finish in front of it, regardless, you're going to have to run faster. Now, life isn't fair. Right. And being a minority and all the things you hear about minorities having to work twice as hard 
as their, you know, majority colleagues in order to get something in life. Uh, you know, yes, I think it's true. I know I know it's true. Okay. But what do you do about it? Are you going to sulk about it? Are you going to sit there and say, woe is me? Or are you going to run faster? Because that's the only way you're going to end this finish line, get to that finish line with your colleagues. You have to run faster to catch up. And so failure was not an option. So my option was to run faster. And that's what I've been doing. I've always ran faster. I don't get caught up in all the, you know, I didn't get something that wasn't, uh, you know, it's not fair. You know, I worked twice as hard. I should have got that. That's immaterial in life. It all depends on, it's how far, how, you know, how fast you run. And so working hard, running fast is what I tell kids nowadays. Don't sit there with a chip on your shoulder. You change it, right? You make your, your change. And, 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 you know, I don't know if you've heard the, the poem Invectors. You know, I'm the master of my faith. I'm the captain of my soul. You, you're always the master of your own faith. So, and if you don't make it, don't blame other people. Blame yourself. Wow. Well, thank you, Stan. These were, I know, I mean, this was, you know, an amazing uh, conversation to kind of close with. And I'm so appreciative of you sharing your perspective and your story. Even the quotes that you're ending with and these takes on life. I mean, it's so clear to see through your journey, how you've lived by those. You've set goals that you've wanted to to reach. And- well, thank you very much. I, and I, if I had to say, what, what, what are the rules for success? And, and you know, everybody has their own rules. I think you've already heard them. You know, work ethic matters, hard work, run faster. I've talked about that. Treating people right. You know, and, and my faith and my parents always told me, you know the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I live by that faith. I always treat people right. You heard me say it. It doesn't, it's not about, you know, your ethnicity or the color of your skin. It's about treating people right. And I've tried to live my life as a leader, always taking people into consideration in every decision I've ever met. Uh, you know, I'm a human. So it, uh, you know the decisions you make. You know how it's going to impact people because just internalize it. Think about what would be your reaction. So people matter. And then the one is, uh, the other one, as I said before, keep an open mind about, you know, opportunities. Your path is not always clear, but, but, if, but you, have to be, you have to be unafraid to, to take the opportunities that are given to you and make the best of them. Uh, and that's what I've been doing my entire career is working hard, treating people right. And then when you see an opportunity, you may not, it may not be clear, but trust people. You know, each time, I trusted General Boykin. I trusted George Schindler. I trusted my ROTC uh, instructors. You got to trust people and treat them right. And and uh, at the end, as I said before, you know, God will lead you where you he needs you to be. I truly think that being a sponge, similarly to how you have been uh, your whole life, listening to other people's stories, perspectives, experiences, help us really to understand more about our world. I mentor young kids nowadays and I tell them, I don't, I don't push the military service on them. I tell you, have a goal, have a plan, like Benjamin Mays says, you know, and go toward that. But I also tell these young high school kids or others, look, if you get out of high school and you don't have a plan and you don't know what you want to do, you really don't know. I tell them, then the military, no matter what service, is not a bad place to go while you're trying to figure it out. Because it's going to teach you 
it's going to teach you a lot. Responsibility is going to teach you those hard work ethic things. It's going to give you, uh, you know, the, the GI Bill in the Army so you can get a path to education. And it's not wasted time. You know, you may not stay like I did and make it a career, but uh, but it will help you try to figure out where to go if you don't already know. Amanda, I have to be honest with you. I don't know if you'll you'll put this in the podcast or not, but uh, it has been announced in CTI that I am going to be retiring soon. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, yeah. It has been. And, uh, but this time I am retiring. <laughs> for good, for yes, real. <laughs> it'll uh, it'll okay. be about 44 and a half, almost 45 years from the time I was commissioned in the United States Army, my professional career. And I think it's wow. it's time to spend a little bit more time with that family. Uh, that uh, that have done everything I've asked. They've followed me around the globe, and they've been a real tr- troop. I have two sons and two grandsons, and 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 a, and a loving wife. And I, I, it's time for me to to do that. But uh, I'm sure I'm going to be doing something else because I I don't know. I mean, I've worked all my life. I'm not going to stop work. Can't sit still. <laughs> yeah, but maybe I'm going to be doing something you know else that you know uh, give me a little bit more time to spend with them. But you better, you can better believe that whatever that is, I'm going to still continue to try to be a productive member of society. I'm going to try to continue to be a leader in this company, by the way, and my team until I leave here and continue to, to be the leader in my family and set good examples. Be a bridge builder, build those bridges that others can just pass over so they can move forward. And, and I'll continue to try to be a mentor to those who want to be mentored and then spend lots of time with my family. So I think that's what the future kind of holds for me. That's beautiful. Well, congratulations. Well-deserved and I'm sure well overdue. So I hope you enjoy this time. That's that's really great. Thanks again, Amanda, uh, like I said, for this opportunity to share and not only my story, but hopefully share some food for thought for others who uh, uh, to consider as they chart their own path you know, to success, whatever that means to them. But however it looks for them, at least, uh, you know, have a plan, uh, have a goal, and then set a path to achieve that. So thanks again. Thanks to you. Thanks to Washington Exec. Thanks for listening to this episode of Humble Beginnings. Check out WashingtonExec.com to find more of our podcasts and profiles on executives. See you next time.